It is indeed good to be back. We uh, traveled 8,000 miles in the last five weeks, and uh, it was good. Got to see our children in California, our grandchildren. And I want to thank you, Sherry and I do, for giving us the time off. Uh, we drove out there to play in the travel trailer. And uh, if you've never had that experience with two teenagers, you should try that sometime. Uh, it was good. We saw a lot of the country. It's beautiful. If you think it's hot here, you should drive through New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, 112, 114. And uh, I had the joy of changing a blowout tire at 112 degrees. And uh, in fact, I hit my motor in that. And so uh, the Lord blessed, kept us safe, uh, spent some time with our children. Thank you again for uh, allowing us the opportunity to be able to do that and, and just spend some time with them really be refreshed with them. Nathan, our oldest son, will be actually a week after Thanksgiving, will be going to Japan for an year. His ship will leave, so we hope to see him. Thank you so much. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I want to begin on Sunday morning some study in the book of Hebrews. Um, and today, really just the, the prologue, if you will, to this book, the complete revelation of God. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Handel's Messiah. It's a, a, a magnificent song, gets a lot of airtime for Christmas in particular. Uh, as a musical arrangement, I'm not a musician. Uh, I can play the radio. That's about it. Um, and mess that up sometimes. But uh, Handel's Messiah is, is just a magnificent song. And if you know anything about the song, the orchestrated arrangement is beautiful and the the chorus part where the choir singing is beautiful. And uh, the whole first part of the song, though, is a buildup to the crescendo, to the end, uh, which we know is the hallelujah chorus. And at the end, you have, you have all the ladies that can sing in the stratosphere. They're, you know, singing the high notes and the hallelujah chorus. And, and, it, and it just is magnificent. I have no doubt that when that was written, it was written with the worship around the throne of God in mind, you know, at the end there. And I've told you the story of Sherry and I being at, at live performances of that, of that chorus and the trumpeters standing on the sides and when they get to the end to the hallelujah chorus part, the trumpeters start blowing a trumpet. You just think, man, Jesus has got to come back right now because, I mean, you know, if this worship is to still here, then it'll be even better in heaven. Uh, but the but the point is in that song, there's a build up to the to the best part at the end. There's there's all the singing in the first part and the music and it's all good. None of it's bad, but it doesn't compare to the end when they do the Hallelujah chorus. The Book of Hebrews in the opening here is kind of like that. Uh, the first few verses are going to talk about prophecy that was given of old, like in the Old Testament. All the prophets received the word of God and they wrote it down, and we have it in the Old Testament. And all of that is good. I mean, you can't read the Old Testament and not enjoy seeing Jesus in all those passages and seeing God's plan in all those passages. However, like Handel's Messiah, what we'll see here, what the writer to the Hebrews will say is, even though all of that is good and all the ways that God spoke to us and revealed to us, he said it doesn't compare to the end. It doesn't compare to the final revelation whom we see in Jesus Christ and the fullness of God's revelation. And so in this opening passage, 
what he's focusing on to these Hebrews, and, and I believe the book, we could take the time to do the school part, right? Who wrote the book of Hebrews and all that stuff? I'll let you work on that. Uh, there's a diversity of opinion. Uh, some say Paul wrote it. Some say, no, the language isn't that of Paul. Let me just say that whoever wrote this, writing to the Hebrews, knew the Old Testament pretty good, okay? And not only did they know the Old Testament pretty good, but they, were, they pointedly were writing to the, to the Hebrews about how Jesus is better than what they were holding on to, okay? So that's what you need to understand about what the writer's writing. And so as he begins in the first two verses, he begins with where, where they've been in Judaism and brings them to where they ought to be in Christ, okay? So look at the first two verses. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Past prophecy. There are three things that we can identify here about past prophecy, and none of them are bad. Again, I, I want you to understand that as we compare prophecy of old to, to working up to Jesus, none of it's bad. It's just that Jesus is always better. No matter what we had before, Jesus is always the pinnacle of what God wanted to say to us. Three things we can understand about prophecy of old. Number one, it's vast diversity, which I think makes it so rich. In other words, all of the Old Testament prophets received a message from God in their context, in their contemporary setting. There, was, there were life events going on, and God spoke to them, and they received that prophecy in the situation that they were in. And because it was in their situation, many times it was it was limited. It didn't have full revelation. It just had what God had to say to them at that time. Let me give you some illustrations. Let's go all the way back to Adam. You say, was Adam a prophet? Well, we could call him a prophet, okay? Adam and Eve, created by God, they had fellowship with God, right? Before the fall, before sin, God talked to them and communed with them. Would you say God was revealing information to them? Yes. I mean, I've often said, don't you wonder in your mind what that first meeting between Adam and God must have been like? I mean, you know, God spoke, God breathed in Adam the breath of life, and he became a living soul. And suddenly, this creature, this man that God created, had consciousness and had life and created an image of God. And the first person he meets is who? His creator. Well, that must have been interesting, right? And, and you know, hello, Adam, I'm God. I just made you. I don't know how that went, right? I don't, I don't, I don't know how that conversation went. But the, the transfer of information which is what God does when he speaks to us, right? He tells us about himself. God must have just, Adam's head must have been spinning with God telling him who he is. And keep this in mind, before the fall, Adam had tremendous ability to understand things we don't because of the fall, right? In other words, Adam had, had unlimited ability that God had created in him to understand things we can't even grasp right now. So Adam received information about God in the context he was in. Now, when they sinned, he received some more information from God, didn't he? God came looking for him and said, well, Adam, because you sinned, you know, I'm going to kick you out of the garden and you know the story. So Adam received revelation from God in his context. And we could say Adam learned about the justice of God and the damage of sin. And he learned all that stuff, which we can read and learn. And then I was thinking about not only Adam, but think about Noah. We could do this all morning. I don't want to take too much time, but I want you to see that these guys receive revelation in their context. Noah lived in a time of incredible wickedness. The world had become, had become so wicked that nobody's left except one, and God said, I'm going to destroy the world. And so Noah learned in his context about God's judgment against sin, didn't he? 
But he also learned about grace because God built, had him build an ark and said, if you get in the ark, you can be safe. And who's our ark today? Jesus. Okay? So Noah learned uh, about judgment and grace. And then, and then you think about Abraham. Abraham was a lost man living in Ur of the Chaldees. And God came to him and said, hey, uh, I got something special for you. You know how that conversation went. And so God, we learn more about God through Abraham. And then some of the other Old Testament guys, let me just run through them real quick. How about Moses? You think Moses learned some stuff about God? Yeah, Moses got humbled, right? And then, then he got exalted. And so we know all about it. And so Moses learned about God and about humility. And then we had, we had Isaiah. And Isaiah had a unique grasp on the holiness of God, didn't he? I mean, you read Isaiah, and he really understood holiness of God. And then, and then we got like Amos, this Old Testament guy who was all about social justice, you know. Uh, man, this isn't fair, God. You know, you know, you're righteous, and where does this sin? So we read that prophet, and we read about social justice. And then one of my favorites that's kind of like this prophet nobody ever preached out of, Hosea. What did Hosea learn? Man, he learned about incredible grace, didn't he, and forgiveness through his wife Gomer. I mean, you read that story and you're like, dude, you know, you've got to buy her back in the market and stuff. Well, what is that a picture of? Jesus buys us back out of slavery of sin, right? So, so you see all these Old Testament. Now here, listen, as much as they are diverse, they're fragmented to point to one person, to Jesus. All of them in their revelation, all of those prophets didn't have the whole revelation. They had parts, which is the second thing. It was all fragmented. We have the privilege to go back and read it and connect the dots. And we go, okay, I see, I see how Hosea works with Amos, and I see God's justice, and then I see grace, and I see mercy. And then we come to the New Testament, what do we see? We see all of that in Jesus. We see it all fulfilled in him. So not only is it fragmented, but it came in a variety of methods, and I really like this. God, God spoke to mankind, to prophets, and gave us his word in a variety of ways in the Old Testament, you find many men and women in the Old Testament who received visions and dreams, right? And these weren't the ate pepperoni pizza and had a dream. This is, this is God giving them a vision or God coming to them in the night and speaking to them. And we think of even lost men like Nebuchadnezzar and, and Pharaoh. They had dreams and they didn't understand. And then you think of Daniel and Joseph and those men who could interpret dreams. So God used dreams as a method, a variety of ways. And then I think of, of Lot. He lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God came to him, and the angels came to him, and the angels showed up and talked to him and said, you got to get out of here. God's going to destroy this place. So angels came, and then and you remember the, the false prophet Balaam? How did God talk to him, remember? Through a donkey. Now listen, you know you're in trouble when God's talking to you through a donkey, right? I'm not going to be crude, but a donkey talking to a donkey, you get it? Yep. All right, you put the pieces together. Balaam, got, Balaam was rebuked by God through an animal, through a donkey. So God used a, 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 an animal, and then Moses, a burning bush, right? He goes out there, and I'm going to turn aside and see this thing. Elijah, a whirlwind, and then, and then taken up to heaven. And then uh, Theophany, uh, Joshua, is going to lead the Israelites into battle to take Jericho and before the battle, he's out there, and Jesus shows up in a theophany, and Joshua challenges him, and, and Jesus said, no, I, I am the captain of the host. And so Joshua recognizes this God, and he falls down and worships him. So God, God revealed himself in a variety of ways in the Old Testament, but here's, here's the point of all of that. The culmination, the pinnacle, 
of all of God's revelation is found in one person, and his name's Jesus. And that's what the writer's saying. He's saying to the Hebrews, he said, look, you have this rich history of Judaism and prophets, and you have the Old Testament, and you have the law, and you have all this revelation about God. But you don't really have it all till you have Jesus. That's what he's saying to them. He's saying, don't hold on to that Old Testament stuff and miss the one that you really need to understand because the full revelation of God is found in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Everything God wants man to know about him is found in Jesus. Look again at verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times, we just talked about that, all through the Old Testament, in various ways, we just talked about that, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Now look at verse 2. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. In these last days, to the Jew, to the Hebrew, there were only two periods of time. There was the, the now, the, the stuff we're living through now, and then there's the kingdom. And what were they looking for? Man, we want the kingdom. Everything you read about the, the Pharisees and all in the New Testament, when Jesus was here, they want to be in the kingdom. And Jesus really rocked their world, didn't he? He said, man, there's going to be prostitutes and there's going to be tax collectors. There's going to be all kinds of the lowest of the low in the kingdom, and you're not going to be there. That shook them up because they thought if anybody was getting in, they were getting in. To the Jew, there was now and there's the kingdom age. And so what does the writer, he said, in these last days, what he's saying to them is this. The kingdom you're looking for came and you missed them. He, he came here, he died on the cross, and you rejected him. Hey, I, I, I'll let you in on something. We are living in the last days. The whole church age is the last days. Because understand this, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is and is not yet what it will be. And here's what that means. If you're saved, you're in the kingdom of Christ right now. The church is a representation of the kingdom of Christ on this earth. We, are, we who are saved are in him, and we're in his kingdom, and we're heirs and joint heirs with him, and we represent the kingdom of Christ to a lost world until he comes back. So the kingdom of Christ is represented right now, and that's what the writer's saying. Now, don't miss him. The full revelation of God has come in his kingdom. Don't miss it. Now, it'll be better. The kingdom still has more fulfilled to come because one day Jesus is going to rapture the church. And we're going to go be with him, get our new bodies. Then after the tribulation, what Jesus is going to do? He's going to come back. King of kings, Lord of lords, set up his kingdom on the earth. So the kingdom's only going to get better from here. But the writer to the Hebrews was saying, look, you guys are missing what you're looking for because the full revelation of God came in his son Jesus Christ whom you rejected. So, in these last days, has spoken to us by his son. Let me, let me say something about, about God speaking to us. When I was studying this this week, I got to thinking about that. If God did not choose to reach out to us to speak to us, we would never be able to know him. We just wouldn't be able to know him. Our minds and our, and our, our understanding is so is so consumed with sin and so blinded by sin in this world that if God didn't take the initiative to speak to us, we would never be able to know who he is. But what God has done and what the writer's saying here is God has spoken to us and he continues to speak to us. 
And what is God saying? In love, in grace and mercy, he's calling us to him. He's calling all of humanity to him. God would have all men to be saved. That's his heart's desire. But all men won't be saved because many reject him. And here's the problem. Many will not hear what God has to say. If you ever talk to somebody, you know they're not listening to you. Mainly your kids, right? Hey, let me tell you, they're, they're, you can tell when somebody's not listening to you. You can tell when they're just being kind and they're standing there and you're talking and, you know, and they're just, they're probably thinking, when's he going to shut up? And when, you know, if you're a preacher, you know that feeling well, you know, when's, when's he going to shut up? The point is God's speaking, isn't he? God's speaking every day. Trust me. Bill and I were just talking. You can't, we drove on the way back through Colorado on purpose. I drove on I-70 through Vail, Colorado, up to the mountains through Denver. You cannot drive through those mountains and not see God. If you can drive through those mountains and not see God, you're blind as a bat. Spiritually, you know, whatever. You cannot, you cannot live and not see God speaking and God reaching out to us. He's saying right here, God has spoken to us in these last days through his son. What's the message? Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Accept him. That's the message. God's speaking. Here's, here's the question. If you're watching online, you're here today. God's speaking. The question is, are you listening? Are you, are you tuning in to what God has to say? Are you Hearing what he has to say. Are you listening to his son or are you rejecting God's message? You see, I'll tell you, Satan's greatest tool is to blind us with things in the world so we don't hear God. Satan's greatest tool is to create all kinds of noise and all kinds of sin and all kinds of stuff so that you can't hear the truth. That's, that's what he does. And he blinds people and so they can't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. I'm going to tell you two primary ways God's talking to us today. And number one is through his word. Why? Because the word, the written word, is a reflection of the living word of Jesus. It's a revelation of him. And so God today speaks to us through his word. In Hebrews 4.12, the writer to Hebrews is going to say, the word of God is living and powerful, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it divides asunder to the heart and soul of men. Listen to me. If a person will genuinely read the word of God, God will deal with them. The Word of God will deal with them. Why is it so imperative that when we teach and preach in the church that we focus on the Word of God? Because it's the only thing that will change the heart of man. It's the only thing. You can't, you can't pep talk somebody into heaven. Just can't. You, can't. you can't positive speaking somebody into heaven. It's the Word of God that's going to convict hearts. I won't say too much about this. We visit churches while we're traveling. Some I like, some I don't like. I won't tell you the difference. One service had to watch the guy on the screen. I like that. If I'd have known that before I got there, we wouldn't have went there. But I didn't want to be rude and get up and walk out in the middle of it, so I stayed. Went to David Jeremiah's church in San Diego. I like that one. You know why? Because when they preach there, they got the Bible open. And they're not running around on stage acting crazy. They're preaching. They're teaching God's word. And man, that speaks to my heart. I don't know about you. Why? How does God speak to us? Out of his word, by his son, Jesus Christ. And let me tell you how the application is made. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. God speaking to us through his word. 
which is about Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit is applying it. He's the one who gives the understanding. He's the one who, who convicts us. Here's the summary of what he says in these first two verses. Very quickly, we're going to look at verse 3. Listen to me very carefully. All the Old Testament is wonderful. And I'm so thankful we have it to see what the prophets had to say and to see how into the New Testament is fulfilled. But it was all in part. It was all in pieces. Nobody had the full revelation. No one prophet understood. Listen, the church was a mystery, Paul said. They had no clue there would be such a thing as a church. But aren't you glad Jesus came? The full revelation of God, the complete revelation of God. Everything we need to know about God, we find in a person of Jesus Christ. Everything. All the Old Testament prophecy makes sense in Jesus. It all fits when you look at Jesus. Now I want to spend our, the rest of our time on this. After telling us about God speaking to us in, the, in parts and in the Old Testament and the fullness is in Jesus, he gives us what has been said, six characteristics or attributes of Jesus, of this messenger, this one whom God has sent. Look at verses 1 to 3. We'll read them all together again. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he is, now watch this, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Man, there's not a more powerful set of verses in the Bible. Man, that is awesome. Let me give you six things in the rest of our time here. Number one, notice that he said here that the glory of God is his. The glory of God is his. Think about that for a minute. Do you know why Jesus is worthy of the glory? Because he is God. He's been God forever. Before Jesus laid aside his glory and veiled himself in human flesh and came here born as a babe in a manger, he was worshipped in heaven as God. He wore the glory of God, the purity, the holiness, the brightness of all that you read in Isaiah about the glory of God, that's Jesus. So his majesty is appropriate for the Godhead because he is God, the majesty of his glory. This one who is forever God came here to reveal God to us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus willingly came to show us God. I've had people say to me, if I could just see God, I would believe. Look at Jesus. Read about him. See him in the Bible. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to know the things God's going to say? Listen to Jesus. You want to know the character of God? Look at Jesus, because he is God, the glory of God. William Barclay, a guy I like to read behind, um, said this about the glory of God. He said, it's not a glory that seeks to destroy man and exalt himself from that destruction of humanity. He said, no, it's a, it's a glory of grace and mercy. It's a glorious God who reaches out to a lost humanity, his creatures whom he loves and desires to have a relationship with us. He said, it's, a, it's the part of his glory that moves him to be exalted in his grace and mercy. 
you understand this. When we get to heaven and the church is there, the bride of Christ, and, and, and we, are a, we are a unique group of people in more ways than one, but unique group of people in that we are redeemed. The Old Testament saints are not part of the church. Those saints that will be saved in the tribulation are not part of the church. You are part of the church in the church age. And you are part of the bride of Christ. You say, what will our purpose be in heaven forever? To bring glory to the one who deserves glory. People in heaven, and I'm sure the angels do it today, scratch their head and say, can't believe they're going to be here one day. Look at that lot, man. Are you kidding? Can't believe they're going to get to run around on the streets of gold and hang out around the throne. Look at them. And Jesus goes, yeah, look at them. I bought them. I redeemed them. I paid for them. They're all clean. So we, we will be part of what exalts him in his glory. Secondly, he says here at the end of verse 2 and end of verse 3 that the kingdom is his. The kingdom is his. Not only is Jesus rightly exalted and glorified because he's God and he rightly possesses the glory of God, but the kingdom, the kingdom is his. The New Testament kingdom of the church is his. You understand this. This church, not the buildings, not the buildings too, but you, the church, belong to Jesus. You know, the church doesn't belong to a preacher, doesn't belong to a board of elders, it doesn't belong to a, a group of deacons who've been deacons for 100 years. It doesn't belong, it don't, it don't belong to any of them people. It belongs to Jesus. The church body belongs to Jesus. Across denominations, and I know I say this in jest, there's going to be a lot of Baptists who are going to be shocked there's other people in heaven than them. I mean, they're, they're just going to be, they're going to be surprised. But listen, saved is saved. It doesn't matter what title you put over the top of it. And the point is the kingdom of saved people belong to Jesus. God the Father appointed him heir of all things. Let that sing in for a minute. Jesus inherits all things because he's the king. Not only that, but he accomplished the work the Father sent him to do. And as a reward, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's heir of all things. Get this. If you're saved, you are an heir and joint heir with Jesus. That's pretty good. I mean, I don't know what all that entails. Listen, I just know that Jesus owns everything. So if I'm an heir and a joint heir with him, I guess I own everything too, right? Not because I deserve it, but because he lets me. Because he's called me his. Because he's redeemed me. So the kingdom belongs to Jesus. And in my heart, the best of the kingdom is yet to come. Listen, when Jesus comes back and raptures us out of here, and the seven-year tribulation happens, and Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, this world's going to be right. The world's going to be right. Not going to be any sin. Not going to be any murdering and carrying on and, and the nonsense. And I mean nonsense that you hear today on the news. Not going to be any of that stuff. You know why? Because King Jesus is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and he's going to rule the world with a rod iron. And we'll be going around high-fiving. Man, this stuff's right now because Jesus is here, right? The kingdom is coming, and so he is the, is the one who will inherit. Thirdly, probably among my favorite, he's creator and redeemer. Jesus, you understand, is the instrument through whom creation happened, the second person of the Trinity. He created all things. The Bible says over and over and over that he's the creator and the sustainer. I'll show you that in just a minute. He's the creator. Creation was damaged because of sin. 
Adam's sin ruined all of creation, not just humanity's relationship, but the world is cursed. Let me tell you, I know the world's cursed. You know why? When I had a flat tire and there's 112 outside, the world was unkind to me. I'm telling you, it was hot out there. The world was unkind to me. The world is not kind to us. You want to go out in the wilderness and just start over? Go for it. It's hard. That you got to grow your foot. Right? The world is unkind. Why? Because of sin. But you know what Jesus has done? He's redeemed all of creation, not just us. One day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So he's the creator and he's a redeemer. Here's my, here's my favorite part, number four. He's not only the creator, but he's the sustainer of the universe. I was telling Bill this a minute ago. I was thinking about that this week. They put this uh, James Webb telescope out of space. Y'all read about that thing? Let me give you some, I'm going to give you, I'm going to like mess with your brain right here. So let's think about this. They put this telescope out there and they're telling us they can see with this telescope light 92 billion with a B, 92 billion light years from here. Okay, you, you think, well, I don't know what that means. All right, let me, let me help you put it in. This is going to mess with you, okay? Keep in mind that Jesus said he holds all of creation in the palm of his hand. Now watch this. The speed of light, since we're talking about light years, is just over 186,000 miles a second. By the way, that's booking. That, that 186,000 miles. The space shuttle only does five miles a second, to put that in perspective. In fact, I looked it up. To go one light year at the speed of five miles a second in a space shuttle would take you uh, 37 years, I think. 37 plus years to go one light year at five miles a second. Anyway, that's not what I want to tell you, but think about this. 